welcome to episode 137 of Junk Filter. My name is Jesse Hawken, and my returning guest is the writer and critic based in Maryland, Jessica Ritchie. Jessica, welcome back to Junk Filter. Uh, It's great to be here. Thank you for having me back. Our subject for today is William Shatner. During the wilderness years of his career, the time between the end of Star Trek, the TV series, and the beginning of Star Trek, the film series. There is an incredible amount of stuff to discuss here. It's a very rich topic, Jessica. <laughs> very much so. <laughs> you, you can get a crash course on basically the entire 1970s through the various <laughs> projects that William Shatner found himself uh, paying rent with. <laughs> I don't know whether it was deliberate or accidental that he made all these incredible movies, but these films are very idiosyncratic and strange. Um, but, you know, he could have found uh, work on uh, some boring uh, network TV show where he played a doctor, but instead he's like, I want to do that biker movie with Andy Griffith. Right. The beautiful thing about the material we're talking about tonight is that most of it is available to watch for free on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Jessica's put together a public playlist for her Patreon, and I'll put a link to that in the show description. One of the things that I was realizing while watching this selection of material is that William Shatner was basically Troy McClure. Yes. I always wondered who Troy McClure was supposed to be, but now I'm starting to think that he was supposed to be William Shatner. Yeah, I mean, like, the name is riffing on, like, Troy Donahue and Doug McClure, who, you know, both did their share of, like, rent-paying B-movies. But the titles that Troy McClure would say that he was in are much closer to things that Shatner actually did. Yeah, like, Shatner could have hosted a uh, instructional film called The Decapitation of Larry Ledfoot, for instance. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, you know, when you look around for what Shatner did on YouTube, you can find all these incredible TV commercials. Uh, he was the spokesperson for the Loblaws grocery store chain. Mm-hmm. Hey, right now, Loblaws is having a huge frozen food sale. You can get tremendous value on over 50 frozen food items, frozen vegetables frozen meat entrees, frozen concentrated juices, ice cream. If it's frozen, you can save plenty. Don't get left out on the cold. Come on in and stock up that freezer. He did commercials and he did uh, some TV pilots that did not go to series and he did some straight up TV movies and he did B movies and he had one or two short-lived TV series, including a, a very forgotten one called uh, Barbary Coast, which was basically kind of like uh, Mission Impossible in the Old West in that like, he was a government agent who often had to put on incredibly absurd disguises as part of whatever the business of the week was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> including some racist ones. Yes, there, there, is, there, is, he, there is one time that he puts on yellow face. It's, yeah. And again, it's like, not that it was ever okay, but like 1975, 74 is really late to still be doing that. Shatner is one of the prides of Canada. He was born in Montreal in 1931. There's a hall named after him at McGill College where he studied business. His father was annoyed with him because he wanted to go into acting, but his father expected him to go into the family business in men's clothing. Oh. To humor his father, he studied business at McGill and he got a degree. But as soon as he was finished at the university, he pursued a career in theater. He also performed at the Stratford Festival. In uh, the second year of its operation, he was offered to, to be there at the very beginning of Stratford, but he turned it down. When he saw it was a success, he agreed. He's a Shakespearean actor, and he was in Judgment at Nuremberg. 
he played a white supremacist in Roger Corman's The Intruder. Have you ever seen that? Yes, and that's one that like I I wish uh, was a little bit better known, if only for like the depressing way that it's like ha- has not really aged, and if anything has come roaring back into revel- relevancy about you know grifter the grifters who it doesn't matter really what they personally believe when they see the money and power to be made in playing on other people's prejudices. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's easily Roger Corman's best film as a filmmaker. Mm -hmm. He actually directed it. It was one of the few Roger Corman movies to not make money though. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But Shatner's excellent in it. Also, another curious film in his early career was Incubus. Can you tell our listeners about Incubus? <laughs> I, I don't know if it's the only film, but it's definitely one of the few feature-length films shot entirely in the uh, cre- uh, created in the twentieth nineteenth century language Esperanto. Basically, a linguist wanted to create a pan-European language. Yeah, and uh, there are people who speak Esperanto in the world. There are Esperanto societies. It never really caught on. But yes, uh, Shatner learned all his dialogue in Esperanto. And so the entire movie, it's a very strange movie, a very low budget, macabre, a tale of the macabre. But it it gets an extra level of macabre in the sense that it's in this un, it's in this artificial language, too. So right. and Shatner's figured out how to emote in an artificial language. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then of course came Star Trek and that changed everything. Mm-hmm. When Captain Kirk was brought back in the late 70s, uh as a result I would say of the success of Star Wars, people were just like uh studios do now. It's like what else can we do? What else what was what else have we got around here? And Paramount was like, "Why don't we just bring back Star Trek?" They almost made it a TV show, though. Mm-hmm. Phase two, yeah. And it, 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 it's such an interesting thing of Paramount was sort of like, oh, hey, we, we, we're, we're sitting on, you know, the, the, this, thi- this thing that can totally compete with Star Wars. And like, wait, we're not going to waste this as a TV show. And then they threw too, again, sort of what's killing movies now, they threw too much money at it that like, I don't think it did badly but it definitely did not make its money back quick enough for what paramount had spent on it so then wrath of khan got conceived as the well we'll just we'll just hedge our bets and just do this one as a tv movie but like it's at some point in pre-production they realized oh this is actually a bit too good to burn off as a tv movie but they kept the budget reasonable and then it, it then it was a runaway blockbuster hit i liked the original star trek movie as mm. boring as it is it's very good very good vibes no plot <laughs> <Yes>. movie <laughs> incredible fashions mm-hmm. uh, incredible Jer- color Jer- scheme yeah G- G- jerry goldsmith basically creating the sound of modern star trek you know mm-hmm. but it was star trek 2 where it really took off and mm-hmm. uh, you and i both love star trek 2 and um I'm I'm not ashamed to admit that William Shatner made me cry at the end of Star Trek too. He he doesn't uh, get me as much in that one. Uh, as it, it's a good performance. I really like this, but like Spock's death always oh. wrecks me. And like I remember seeing the Wrath of Khan in revival. Uh, a, a couple of months after my dad died and man, I just got sucker punched the moment like uh, Spock asked, you know, ship out of danger and just started bawling and, and kind of scaring the hell out of the very nice little boy, like a row behind me who yeah. was on an outing with his dad. 
bad. So I do feel a little bit bad about somebody's that. crying in front of him. Yes. Uh, well, what tear? What made me tear up at the end was um, the final scene with Shatner uh, saying, "Tis a." finer thing than I have ever done or whatever that sort of speech. Yeah. And, uh, and they say, how do you feel? And he says, I feel young. You oh know, yeah. That, that's a great so moment and a great delivery. I mean, like <laughs> kudos for, to Nicholas Meyer for figuring out how to get that performance out of Shatner. Didn't he make Shatner do a lot of takes just to wear him down? The story I, I heard is that Nicholas Meyer's uh, method was requiring, was doing a lot of takes and, you know, Shatner would be Shatnering to the rafters and then, you know, eventually get worn out and just do the take. And then that would be the one thing. Well, it worked. It did. It very much so. Did you know the only reason Shatner directed the fifth part was because Leonard Nimoy got to direct the fourth part? Yes, (laughs) yes, yes. So they had a favored nation arrangement. So it's mm-hmm. like if Nimoy gets to do something, then Shatner gets to do something. And you know, all that needs to be said about the, uh, the fifth one that Shatner directed is that Paramount immediately got Nicholas Meyer back on, on the <laughs> yeah. horn to come direct the sixth one. <laughs> so Shatner was kind of lost in the days after Star Trek was canceled. One thing about uh, TV contracts in the 60s is that the idea of syndication and people wanting to watch old TV shows was kind of a new concept. And so when Shatner and the cast of Star Trek signed their contracts, they only got residuals for the first five reruns. When that wasn't considered, that was, that was the idea that NBC would rerun each show five times, which they didn't do Mm -hmm. in the world of syndication. uh, They didn't have to pay residuals to any of the actors. So in fact, Shatner, when he was uh, paid for his reruns on, NBC's Star Trek, that was all the money that he saw from the show. So in those days after Star Trek was canceled, he was a newly divorced man, suddenly unemployed with three children, and he was doing summer stock theater. And he tells a depressing story in his autobiography of the night of the moon landing in 1969. A year earlier, Shatner had been an honored guest at Mission Control at NASA where he was presented with a model of the Enterprise, which, by the way, accidentally broke at the presentation. But, you know, one year later, NASA's put a man on the moon, and he's watching it in this trailer home on a little black-and-white TV, all alone, feeling sorry for himself. Yeah, it's just... (laughs) Fame is a very fickle mistress, as it turns out. Yeah, anyway, so Shatner needed a job, and, you know, he was trying to work in theater... But he didn't say no to a lot of the stuff that came his way in television in the 70s. Um, One thing that I want to mention before we dig into the first movie we're getting into details about was this weird movie of the week he did that you told me about in 1972 called The People. Right. The People, uh, I think no less than Francis Ford Coppola executive produced it, is based on a collection of short stories by the new wave sci-fi author Zena Henderson. And they're, uh, they're largely about a group of human-looking alien refugees who have settled in various communities in the Southwest. And like the stories are loosely connected and like some communities of these aliens are pretty open with their abilities. Like they have, they have like uh, telepathy and telekinesis and various things like that. And then other communities are very frightened of discovery and very close to outsiders. So the people is kind of a synthesis of all of these stories in that 
a outsider human school teacher comes to one of these communities to teach and she notices how like closed off and quiet everyone is to her and Shatner is a small town doctor human who is you know semi-friendly with these people but they kind of also keep him at arm's distance and he's he's always wondering why these people don't really ever seem to get sick and like over the course of the movie both of them will discover what's really going on and some of the various alien refugees will decide to be more open with these two and it's interesting that it was it was supposed to be a pilot but i'm honestly not sure how you'd go from there for like a series of the week yeah i guess it it works as a as a tv movie but discovering that it was a pilot for a prospective series it's like oh I don't know how that would have gone. Actually, right. there's not enough meat on the bones on this one. Or it's it's one of those things where, like, you know, in unless like you're doing what TV would not have done in 1972 of being like a granular look at this 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 community and like really focusing on like the alien characters and a token human, it'd be like all it takes is like one outsider to find out, and then well, the, the, the secret's out. You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you got my attention with the idea of Amish extraterrestrial. Yes, yes. It's definitely, <laughs> you know, very, yeah, very early 70s. Believe it or not, here we are in the last half of the 20th century under these circumstances. And what are we worrying about? The grotesque practices of a primitive cult that was stamped out before the coming of Christ. Not entirely, Mr. Kovalik. There are still druids. Oh, yes, of course there are. And there are still witches and Satanists. And those who believe that Jimson weed can make them immortal. There's never been any shortage of idiot things to believe in, nor idiots to take them up. Stop it! I hope that makes you happy. It hasn't me. What would? I'm going to open a bottle of it right now. <laughs> so let's talk about the first really strange movie in, in our uh, selection, which is one that... Um, I didn't really know about until I started doing the research. You had already seen it. It's called The Horror at 37,000 Feet. Yes, the er 70s premise of The Exorcist Meets Airport. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of two movies that we're discussing tonight that are very uh, obviously influential on the movie Airplane. Yes. What set the scene for us, Jessica? What's going on here? We're, we start at Heathrow Airport. Yeah, it's we start at Heathrow, and it's a red-eye flight from Heathrow to the United States, and a unhappily married couple is going back home, and inexplicably they've decided to bring the ruins <laughs> of a cursed abbey with them, even even though the wife who's who's english and it's this this is from her family estate didn't really want this but their husband insisted for for reasons for lack of a better word so your er 70s cast of the rest of the plane is tammy grimes is a british local and secret druid who was trying to stop the removal of the abbey because it was you know the reasons it's cursed it was actually like a site of like ancient druidic worship you have Francis Nguyen is like a fashion model who's there because you need a token 
exotic ethnic character who knows voodoo. And again, and again, the, 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 the insult of treating, you know, Southeast Asian is like, oh, that's voodoo. It's the same thing. Of course it is. Whatever. You have Buddy Epson as a, <laughs> as a baron of business. You have uh, a country Western singer. You have uh, Paul Winfield as the, the dignified doctor. You have Chuck Connors as the pilot and all of these people are going to have to figure out what to do when the the cursed ruins in the cargo hold start leaching various substances and evil into the rest <laughs> of the plane and like freezing it cold and yeah. you know uneerie groans calling for the sacrifice of the woman whose state these stones came from in the first place and oh oh and of course where Shatner Shatner is the unhappy ex-priest who just kind of wants to crawl into a whiskey bottle until all of this blows over first we find out Shatner's a priest and then we find out he's a defrocked priest and I Mm -hmm. guess he had sex even though he's a priest because at one point he says to the woman you know, you should know better than anyone else why I'm not a priest anymore. He says something gross like that to her. Yeah, and what's so so weird about this movie is I have <laughs> never been able to read, all right, is that the woman he's re- romantically involved with and left the priesthood for? Or it could just as easily be like a sister, you know, <laughs> that like, you know, she's taking her alky ex-priest brother back to the United States for reasons or something. <laughs> The other funny part, you mentioned the cowboy. Uh, yeah. At the beginning of the movie, he's sort of, howdy, howdy, everybody. And uh, the stewardess says, uh, oh, who are you? And he says, oh, I'm an American actor. I was making Westerns in Italy. And it's like, hmm, very Rick Dalton-esque. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't think I, I caught that until you pointed it out. <laughs> so it's like the exorcist meets Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> meets airport. Yes. What if Rick Dalton had been possessed by a demon? (laughs) But yeah, anyway, the thing about this movie is it's very entertaining. Like Mm -hmm. you have to judge these movies, these uh, disaster movies based on uh, how well they stick to the pattern and Mm -hmm. uh, hew to the formula. And on that measure, this is a perfect movie to watch on TV late at night. And I do want to take a minute or two to give you a pulpit to talk about something you feel very strong about your evangelicism towards TV movies. Cause this is a good example. Oh yeah. I, I like uh, TV movies in particular 70s TV movies because of like the solid professionalism that meant met some of the just most insane premises possible. I mean, like this, this is the perfect example. It's like, you know, it's the exorcist meets airport and everyone is playing it with good faith earnestness. It's like, yes, that that's, that's what we're doing. And, and we are going to act genuinely worried about the possessed Abbey and the cargo hold because, you know, we're earning our paychecks by God. And it's yeah. like, everything is so smirky and sloppily made now that like, you, you get an appreciation for very disreputable and very disposable culture that you wouldn't before. Mm-hmm. Like this film uh, covers the 
premise very nicely. We are deftly introduced to all the characters. Mm -hmm. Then we're put on the airplane. Then the plane uh, is stuck in midair because the demonic spirits are basically holding the plane in midair. They can't communicate to ground control. And then one of the passengers becomes possessed and starts speaking in Latin. And of course, Shatner speaks Latin because he went, he tried to be a priest. So he Mm -hmm. knows what's going on here. And then they start to realize that the, the demon will let the plane go if they perform a human sacrifice. Right. <laughs> and Buddy Epson is like, well, let's just sacrifice the girl finally. You know, like you start <laughs> thinking that maybe even the other passengers have been demonically possessed too. I, I think it's more that like, if they're trying to do like, you know, this, this is how fear and panic and superstition work. And that like, you know, these very modern and very with it seventies people start like, you know, the, the sun's never coming back unless we, you know, throw somebody off a cliff. So up oh, it's you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but at one point, but at one point, they're like they're they're uh, burning a fire on the plane yeah, to try because, and keep warm. <laughs> yes, and like the little girl panics and just starts ripping pages out of her coloring book and just <laughs> hurling them in the fire. <laughs> somebody, somebody starts uh, using their money to keep the fire yeah. going, like pulling mm-hmm. money out of their wallet, and yeah. it, it just feels like society's unraveling. Yes, and then, and then uh, there's a moment where they decide to give the 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 demons their sacrifice that they want so they uh they grab the little girl's doll and yeah try to trick the druids (laughs) yeah try to use voodoo yeah (laughs) (laughs) but anyway the movie uh is just chugging along it's so entertaining another thing i love about tv movies is the commercial break parts (laughs) yes fucked up shit is happening and then they fade to black yeah, it's like everyone on this plane is going to die. We'll be right back after this message from Lipton Soup at Eastern Airlines. <laughs> not Eastern Airlines. No, not Eastern Airlines. I don't think they want to advertise with like this. Yeah, anyway, uh, so the big payoff at the end is that Shatner, the defrocked priest, sort of like Mel Gibson in Signs, he's lost the, his faith and he gets it back. Uh, because he has to fight the demons. Like, imagine M. Night Shyamalan, what a great TV movie director he would have been. I think so, too. I think so, I, th- I think so too. And all, and, it, and again, it's it's one of those things, too, where, like, for the most part, the horror at 37,000 feet is, like, its reach isn't exceeding its grasp. But it's like, okay, if we're doing an exorcist cash-in, we need, like, the, 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 the death that you fall down a great distance. Only, you know, we don't have the stunt unit or the location shoot to do the steps at Georgetown. So we're going to try to, like... I, 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 it's something you have to see for yourself, but like Shatner's exit is truly one for the ages. <laughs> yeah, I laughed out loud. Me too. Uh, <laughs> he gets sucked out of the plane, and I'm not going to say what, what the next shot is. You have to see it. Yeah, it's wonderful. But do you see the the meaning here, Jessica? Like he found his religious purpose. He uh, he did uh, his duty as a religious man, a man of faith. Yeah, he 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 found out that like, well, you know, if if evil exists, then I guess that means God exists too. I hope I hope that was some kind of comfort. At the yeah. end. <laughs> anyway, good ass TV movie, I say, and mm-hmm. uh, Shatner is very good in this movie. He uh, lots of ripe dialogue that he yeah. relishes. He's always drinking in the movie and feeling mm-hmm. really sorry for himself. Shatner does that stuff so well. He does. Do you really hate yourself that much? <laughs> I always wait for that. The defrocked priest 
delight of the armchair analyst. Where did you lose your faith? I didn't. It lost me. <laughs> I'm frightened. Can you help me? I'm sorry. I'm fresh out. Aren't you afraid? Of dying. I gave that up along with the rest of my illusions. I don't understand you. Those are only words. Words, yes. We talk a lot in the church. It keeps us from asking why we can't have one sign, one tiny, infinitesimal sign to sustain us in the darkness. Let's move on to talk about the movie that I really want to evangelize on this show. I think it is a terrific movie and I wish more people knew about it. It is on YouTube. You can watch it for free. It's on Blu-ray. You can buy the Blu-ray of this movie made for television, made for ABC, but I fucking love it. It's called pray for the wildcats. Yeah, this, this was neat. And again, like for everything that's like goofy and charming and B movie about the horror at 37,000 feet, there's stuff like this, which is sort of like, if this had been a theatrical movie, it would probably have a little bit more of a reputation and cult, Mm -hmm. but like, you know, TV movies reviewed as like, so disposable, like it it takes a lot for like, you know, for them to have been really remembered because like, well, the whole thing of like the ABC movie of the week is like of the week that we have like, you know, uh, like, I don't know if they had like a full 52 on deck, but they definitely had like a TV season worth of these, but yeah, it, it, it really fascinated me in like seeing TV, looking around at what New Hollywood was doing and seeing where like the media landscape was and remarkably meeting it on a couple different vectors of like, okay, so it's like a uh, unhappily married uh group of upper middle class people and then it like veers into like the hills have eyes kind of survival (laughs) horror and yet and yet it it doesn't feel jarring in the sense of that like these don't go together it's it's that they end up commenting on each other in really interesting ways and it just ends up being like this sun rotted biting look at like the monsters capitalism patriarchy makes of us all Mm -hmm. When I was watching this movie, I scribbled on my notes. This is Mad Men meets Mad Max. Yeah, that's that's a really good thumbnail description. (laughs) It's like these aging advertising men that were introduced uh, without major context. They're driving around. Mm -hmm. We don't know they're even advertising men. We just see four guys driving around on motorbikes in the desert. And then we cut to their long-suffering spouses getting a lunch ready for them. Yeah, and, and already there, there's all these really interesting, like, class and gender markers of like you know these rough and tumble dirt bikes but like the luncheon they're being prepared is like shrimp cocktail and roast beef and like two of the women who the 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 older women uh angie dickinson and lorraine gary who are actually married have clearly done this before and the new girl janet margolin who is and this is this is crucial is the youngest one's live-in girlfriend not his wife yet in fact she says you know i don't know how to play wife Yet, yeah. yeah, but this is her future. Like, she's right, exactly. Have to be, you know the uh, the loving the loving housewife. Right. Uh, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, we should say the cast in this movie, an incredible rogues gallery. Like, mm-hmm. almost like um, they picked these names out of a hat and cast right. them in the movie. So you've got Marjo Gortner, the former child actor turned priest turned uh exposer of uh religious have you ever seen marjo the documentary yes yeah where where he reveals all these tricks that evangelicals use to play Mm -hmm. on people it it actually won the oscar for best documentary that year yeah it's it's really good and anyway but he was also an actor and was in 
weird movies, everything from uh, this to Star Crash. Yes, <laughs> Speaking of Star Trek and Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Um, also, Robert Reed from The Brady Bunch with a perm. Mm-hmm. Um, Andy Griffith as this uh, client that these advertising men are trying to attract. And William Shatner playing against type this time as this very uh, sad and um, desperate man. Right. Sam Farragut, Andy Griffith, is basically the crown jewel client of this advertising agency and so basically gets kowtowed to whatever he wants. And what he wants is a trip through the Baja Desert to, to pick out, supposedly to pick out locations for a new uh, ad for his company, but really for, for him to as a show of strength of that I can make you go on this trip because I want it. Now, uh, Robert Reed is a eager to please go getter who's sort of in the prime of his career. Marjo Gortner is the young uh, ad art guy eager to pr- prove himself, and Shatner is the gone to seed has been who is is such a has been he's actually been fired and has it but has enough like leftover loyalty at the company for them to to sort of like do a soft water landing firing like i want i want you to hand in the the credit cards but we won't tell anyone that you've been fired and we'll get we'll give you another month to clear out your desk (laughs) and so shatner doesn't want to do this trip but then he sees of like how much he's going Going to lose when he has to admit he doesn't have this job anymore and how he absolutely can't provide for his family anymore. And he's, he, he's at like a routine checkup. And when he realizes he's actually in pretty decent health, he gets the idea to, to like re-up his health insurance, life insurance policy for like $200,000. So he suddenly agrees to this trip because he's basically planning on never coming back. And that the insurance money from the his supposed accidental death will take care of his family only a wrench gets thrown in that plan when it turns out that you know uh andy griffith's character isn't just a rich prick he's a raving psychotic (laughs) and now they're stuck in the middle of the baja desert with him (laughs) yeah i mean the sexual politics of this are so weird because you have like Lorraine Gary as more or less, you know, the the good wife, albeit, you know, ladies be shopping. And then you have <laughs> Robert Reed's wife, Angie Dickinson, as the bad wife. I mean, she, she it turns out she's having an affair with Shatner's character. And then you have uh, Jenna Margolin as like the, the, the young girlfriend who like her complication is like she informs Gortner that she's pregnant and like Gortner clearly doesn't want to be tied down like mm-hmm. that. But like without getting too far ahead of myself, the way that ends up resolving is a really nice feeling of ambiguity and very uh, post-women's lib, post-Roe v. Wade. None of these women are all that well-drawn, and it's more that the actresses they cast are so capable that they find shadings in them. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think their unhappiness and the untenability of their situations are understood to be legitimate complaints that yeah, Robert Reed is a terrible husband to Angie Dickinson and she's right to want a divorce. I really like the scene where the boys leave their wives at the border and ride into Mexico Mm -hmm. and Farragut 
who's just so obnoxious, gives them all matching Wildcats motorcycle jackets. Right, right. Dickinson has had enough of Robert Reed. She's having an affair with William Shatner. And she's also pissed off because Shatner was trying to weasel out of this trip. And she was hoping that that would give them a chance to be together. So she's pissed that he decided to go on this road trip with her husband after all. Mm -hmm. But she says to Robert Reed, get it together, lover. That's a great moment. (laughs) (laughs) A thing about this movie, like it is cinematic. Mm -hmm. It's a TV movie, but there there are beautiful shots throughout the film when they're driving away into over the border in this movie, the American border is a fence (laughs) and on the other side of the fence is Mexico. (laughs) Right. But they have this crane shot of all the boys riding away on their motorcycles. And then they cut to this great panning shot of the wives behind the border fence Right. And they just show each one of them. And then they, when they land on Dickinson, she just says, pray for the wildcats. Yeah. Really sarcastic. Yeah. Again, these things could be shot really surprisingly well for what you expect TV, particularly like older TV to look like. This is the kind of movie, you know, how like um, episodes of Columbo would get released theatrically in Italy. Yes, justifiably so, honestly. <laughs> yeah, but I could see a movie like Pray for the Wildcats getting released in Europe in theaters. Yeah, I mean, that happened a couple times with a lot of TV movies. Like, there's one I'm very fond of called Gargoyles that got a uh, theatrical release. And for that matter, both the Buck Rogers original and the original Battlestar Galactica pilots got theatrical releases in Europe. What I was thinking when I was watching this movie is it's too bad that Mad Men uh, only went into the year 1969 because this feels like a lot a lost season of Mad Men like mm-hmm. when Don Draper's even more long in the tooth like you know he wants to kill himself because he has a he's in an unhappy marriage and he sees no you know he's yesterday's man in the ad world and the cool guys in the 60s are all yesterday's men now and yeah. here they are desperate Sterling Cooper is desperately trying to hold on to this psychotic client and, yeah, and you know, yeah. women's lib is really heating up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. So I, mean, I, I love how this a film's concerns are that of of Mad Men's concerns, except Mad Men stopped telling the story at some point, whereas this one goes into the seventies and then into psychotic the hills have eyes territory. Right. <laughs> like right. if Don Draper found himself on the set of Shout at the Devil or something. Yes. You know, I've been thinking about those kids on the beach. Acid heads. You know, I was going to try that one time. Acid. Come on. No, really. Huh? I'm 44. It's time to try everything. At least once. The other funny thing about Pray for the Wildcats is that Shatner and Griffith are wearing yellow shirts not unlike... Star Trek shirts and Robert Reed is wearing a red shirt. Yeah, that that jumped out at me both is like particularly the costuming on Shatner felt like were we supposed to read this as like recalling, you know, your glory days as you used to be captain of the Enterprise and look at you now, but also kind of had me set up to think, oh, well, Robert Reed is going to die because he's yeah. he's wearing a red motocross jersey. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but um, Griffith totally looks like a demented Captain Kirk. Mm-hmm. And he's you- uh, battling against the actual William Shatner. Tell us about how nightmarish Griffith is in this movie. He is so scary in this film. Yeah, like what basically makes a trip go pear-shaped is 
Griffith uh, eye gets caught by a, a pretty hippie girl and her boyfriend on vacation. And like, he tries to force himself on her at like a cantina and gets pulled, pulled off her and like, and she and her boyfriend leave. And then unfortunately they come across them again when they're much more isolated and have like parked their vehicle on this, this beautiful cliff overlooking the sea where they're both like skinny dipping. And, uh, Griffith tries to indecent proposal the boyfriend of like I'll give you money if you let me sleep with your girlfriend and like your boyfriend's not having it so Griffith if I'm remembering right wrecks their car and then they get word later that because again you know this, this is the middle of Baja that the boyfriend died of heat exhaustion trying to get help and the girl's currently critical in a hospital from heat exhaustion herself and now they're stuck on do we cover for Griffith or not but it's a scary moral dilemma for people with no morality. Yes. And that, that's, that's the thing too, is that like, and we're back to like, the, 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 what makes this movie so interesting is that it, there's, there's things that are sexist or there's things that can be read reactionary. It's much more about like, this isn't so much about you were too weak to take on a real man. It's sort of like, this is what modernity and capitalism will end up making all of us, you know, Mm -hmm. just like what's in it for me? How can I protect my own neck? I'm just trying to keep my head down and not make waves and just the ugliness that bleeds out from that. Yeah. Because when the guy dies, when the hippie boyfriend dies, Shatner feels that we really do have to go to the police about this because we do know we were involved. Um, The Andy Griffith character, um, he did basically kill them by forcing them to be stranded in the desert. Like that's as good as killing them is how Shatner looks at it. And the other guys on the agency are kind of like, well, you know, I, yeah, I guess so. Well, maybe when we get back, but, but the, m- the main reason why they are compelled to do the right thing is because the girl might live and tell the story. So it's in their best interest to uh, talk to the police if they have to. But once she dies too, they're like, great, we're off the hook. But Shatner's character has a conscience. Andy Griffith has actually uh, basically leveraged the situation into being that he's basically, he would sooner kill Shatner. They get into this insane chase between Andy Griffith and Shatner, where they uh, are driving around really fast on some cliffs and Mm -hmm. it's shot from above and it's a really thrilling sequence. Yeah. There's some really impressive stunt writing on this. But it does have a laughable death when Farragut's motorcycle yes. is flying off a cliff. Yes. I, 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 I did have a, a bit of like wanting to, to shout out, I regret nothing as he yeah. plunges off the cliff. Yeah. We're, we're describing this movie that is actually a very, very weird experience to watch. Like it's yeah. got some, some melodramatic acting, but it, but it also has a real visual style to it. Mm-hmm. Um, Griffith uh, with that little ax where he's, trying to kill the hippie. At right. one point, he, he says to the hippie, I'm a, I'm a hippie too. I'm a hippie with money. Get out of here. Hey, Sam, let's roll. Just having a friendly little discussion, Terry. It won't be the same as it was back at the cantina. I understand you, hippies. That's because I'm a kind of a hippie myself. I'm a hippie with money. No old-fashioned rules about what's right and wrong. Just hang loose and let it all happen. Make that right? Take your girlfriend down there on the beach. She probably feels the same way. This week down here with you, next week somewhere else with somebody else. 
What difference does it all make? Come on, Sam. Shut up. You are twisted, man. I'm easy to get along with, boy. How many hundred dollar bills is it going to take to do business with you? Two or three? Get out of here. Just get out of here. Come on. Come on, hippie. Come on, hippie. You crazy or something? Come on, hippie. Let's go. Let's go. I was realizing that he was he was like a proto MAGA guy, Andy Griffith's yes. character. Like he's like a the kind of wealthy man who could fly to January sixth and cosplay as a as a revolutionary. Oh, very much so. Yeah, which again gives it gives the, the the whole movie this this weird energy. <laughs> yeah. When he's at the cantina and he's ogling the girl, he looks like Jack Nicholson in The Shining levels of being demented. Yeah, it's it's like it's funny because like Griffith, you know, as much as he's known for like you know the the, the kindly a sheriff and like the Andy Griffith show, you know, had clearly played an iconic villain before. Again, very MAGA villain in A Face in the Crowd. Crowd, mm-hmm. But the they're the kind of like psychosis here I had never seen before, and like I understand that like he felt that like he went if he went places he didn't really want to go again as an actor, but it's also kind of a shame because he was very good at playing heavies. Yeah, he's so scary in this movie that you can understand why he wanted to play Matlock for a long time. Yes, <laughs> you know, yes. it doesn't seem like acting. It's like he's channeled something dark within him. I'm not yeah. saying it's not acting, but I am saying that I'm not used to seeing Andy Griffith terrify me the way yes. that um, Angela Lansbury in the Manchurian candidate is so terrifying yeah. Yeah. Like, or Fred McMurray in uh, double indemnity. It's like, yes. I, I think of these guys as like lovable TV friends, <laughs> Yes, <laughs> but here's Andy Griffith with a little hatchet trying to kill a hippie. And he's like, come on hippie. Like he's just yeah. he's so crazy. When Pray for the Wildcats premiered, there was an interview with Andy Griffith, and he said, the night before the first scene, I dreamt I was playing the scene with Don Knotts, and I killed him with my bare hands. (laughs) I kept beating on Don after he was dead. I had to force myself awake. I was really shaken. Griffith was so freaked out by this dream that he actually phoned Don Knotts in the middle of the night to make sure he was okay. Yeah, I'm... (laughs) I mean, I, I mean, like most of the time when like an actor talks about, you know, again, speaking of the comic book movie collapse of like, oh, it was like really intense playing Plastic Man. And I, I went to some really dark places and like, you're lying. You're, you're absolutely lying. But like, I, I have no trouble believing you having some upsetting dreams from playing a part like this and pray for the wild cats. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, Griffith talked to a psychiatrist friend of his and because Griffith wanted to understand this dream because it made work very difficult for him the next day. <laughs> right. Uh, you try dreaming about murdering Don Knotts with your bare hands. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Who, who am I to judge? They both agreed that um, he was killing off Andy Taylor of Mayberry and his association professionally with Don Knotts. That's what the dream meant. <laughs> that Andy Griffith was was changing his career by doing this movie. He was erasing the the image that everyone has of him. Right. Uh, and sadly, this movie wasn't seen by enough people to actually change the way that we all thought of Andy Griffith. Right. And, I, and in a weird way, that's what makes this movie so strange because it's such an outlier to everything else that Griffith played. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Griffith dies and... 
they they all sort of the, the rest of the, the men bring Griffith's body back with them to the border and they reunite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they That's reunite. a funny scene where yeah. the corpse is coming back. The wives are all there to see them return, but they brought a coffin with yes, them. Yes, exactly. With the charred corpse of Andy Griffith inside. <laughs> yes. And so, you know, Shatner has rediscovered his will to live, and you know, and again, and again, there's the, the weirdness of there's both a reactionary w- reading of like you know you just dis- you discovered that you know you you can fight to the death and that you actually don't want to die because you've gotten in touch with like you know your alpha self, but also the idea that like Shatner is the only one who has any kind of positive reconciliation with his partner that like you know. Lorraine Gary, who's been kind of, who's been informed of both like their actual financial condition and also the affair, I think by that point kind of forgives him and wants to reconcile with him because whatever else I I think we're to read it, they do love and care for each other. You know, Robert Reed and Angie Dickinson coolly greet each other and Angie Dickinson just asks for a divorce. (laughs) And then Marjo Gortner and Janet Margolin, you know, sort of tentatively walk up to each other and, you know, Marjo Gortner says like, well, you know, I, I guess maybe having a kid wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. And like Margolin coolly informs him that, you know, it's been taken care of. And it's really interesting to see abortion portrayed as sort of the, well, that's that kind of mm-hmm. thing. And like, also we're back to the very interesting sexual politics of this is that you can read the more conservative reading of Gortner proved himself too weak to deserve to be a father. But there's also, I think, a very fair reading of that. Well, she, she it's her body and she can have an abortion if she wants to. And she's kind of completely in the right reading the situation as neither of us are ready to have a kid now. I think she's done with him too. Yeah. And then we see the three couples drive away in their cars in a sort of roundabout and just drive off. And that's the end of the movie. The thing about this movie is that I think it got a reputation. Like most TV movies are gone and then forgotten. Right. Pray for the Wildcats had a life of its own because people were like, you've got to see this movie with William Shatner, Mr. Brady and Andy Griffith. Yeah. Has been, and you know, Sheriff Andy Taylor being a complete psychopath. <laughs> One other fun fact about the production of this movie is that um, Marjorie Gortner said in an interview that there wasn't much to do on the location in Baja, Mm -hmm. California, in Mexico. So all they did was drink. And apparently Robert Reed got drunk and kept hitting on William Shatner. Oh, that's funny. (laughs) Because Reed wasn't out yet as a Mm -hmm. gay man, but uh, he had a thing for Shatner, apparently. (laughs) Who didn't? (laughs) Every few years, a motion picture is made, which by its very nature demands that everyone see it. A motion picture that dares expose the innermost depths of the human soul. I thought I locked the door. Well, what are you doing here? A film which penetrates all preconceived ideas of fear. William Shatner and Kim Nicholas as two souls caught in a sphere of suffering. Somebody's gotta believe me. This next movie is very special. It's a regional horror movie from 1974 called Impulse, shot by, uh, what, how would one describe William Greffe? Uh, he was a regional filmmaker out of Florida, and 
impulse is perhaps the, a, a story of maybe the ultimate Florida man. But before <laughs> that, uh, Griffey did things much more akin to like, you know, Mako, Jaws of Death, or Sting of Death. Sting of Death, easily the best wear jellyfish movie that yeah. you're likely to see. But Im- Impulse is honestly interesting in that being off model for really what I know of Griffey in that there is no monster or supernatural business in it. I saw this really good William Griffey movie called Stanley. Have you seen that? Uh, no, because I have a serious phobia of snakes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, don't see this movie yes. then. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's about a, a disturbed young man and his pet rattlesnake. Yes, and, I, uh, I do know of it, I'll, I'll oof, say. Okay. Yeah. So how, how could you watch Raiders if you're so scared of snakes? I, I am wondering if Raiders is not patient zero for why I'm so afraid of snakes. <laughs> and and for, for, you know, every time I rewatch Raiders, I do have to kind of look away from the screen during the well of soul sequence. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Oh man. <laughs> so how I would describe impulse is that it would be like trying to make night of the hunter or shadow of a doubt after you've just been bonked on the head with a frying pan. Oh, that that's a really good way to put it. Or like, you know, <laughs> Florida man tries to remake Shadow of a Doubt after eating a gator sausage laced with meth or something. (laughs) Night of the Hunter, but with the tenor of like a drunken air uh, parking lot fight in front of an Applebee's. Yeah, it would be as if uh, if yeah. Harry Powell in Night of the Hunter was introduced in uh, having a fist fight in an Applebee's. Yes. That's perfect. Yes. Yeah, you're right. You're you're bang on, Jessica. This is Florida Man, the motion picture. <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> um, by the way, uh, William Greffey said that he talked Shatner into being in this movie after a chance meeting with him at an airport. That's how he was cast. <laughs> I, ha- I have no trouble believing that. <laughs> You know, hey, hey, Bill, do you, do you need to make your alimony payment right now? Well, come on down to Fort Lauderdale and I'll, I'll, I'll make that for you. It was recently restored. And at the uh, screening of it last year, uh, William Shatner actually showed up for the Q&A afterwards. And he admitted that he had never seen the movie before. <laughs> I, I, I'm not surprised. <laughs> Which is too bad because it is one of his wildest performances. <laughs> He's pretty good in this film, but he obviously did it for money. It only took 15 days to shoot and they only had Shatner for 12 days. Okay. So it's not a very polished film. It's so funny because this one was released theatrically, even though Pray for the Wildcats and Horror at 37,000 Feet look great. Yeah, that, that's what's so funny to me is that like Impulse was the theatrically released one and it looks like it was fished out. The print looks like it was fished out from the bottom of the lake. Like I'm, I'm sure it looked better theatrically and I'm sure, again, it's insane that you can say the restored Blu-ray of Impulse will look even better. But at the same time, it's, it's a, it's, you know, it's, it looks like what it is, which is a very hastily shot film. Yeah. Shatner plays a psychopathic gigolo mm-hmm. would be how I would describe him. Every woman in this movie seems to have the hots for him as well. Yeah. And like, it's really funny too, because like 74 is kind of him at his most like dissipated. So yeah. it's, 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 it's like getting, get, getting hot for like the, the, the second best looking boat dealer in Miami Dade. I, I don't, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> Yeah. Um, oh my God. Uh, 
let's let's try to summarize this movie for the listener, Jessica. This is your challenge. Oh, well, like well, like you said, he's a, a love him and leave him gigolo whose thing mainly is lifting widows of their life savings. And his root trauma is as a child, his mother was a no good, hard drinking prostitute. And if I'm remembering right, he, he killed one of her clients. Yeah. She brings a drunk soldier home. Yes. And, and the the soldier gets violent with them both and Shatner kills him. And with, with a samurai, with a samurai sword, the, the real takeaway from that is, you know, the dollar story Freud of the little boy, you know, chews on his finger in like, (laughs) Oh, what have I done? And then that's the thing that grown Shatner does as the tell for he's about to have a psychotic episode. (laughs) And it gets a little sillier every time he frantically chews on his pinky because you realize, Oh, some acting's about to happen. I did a bad thing. I did. I do it. I'm so sorry. Sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the uh, I love the title sequence with uh, Shatner watching a belly dancer at a club, and he's smoking one of the many cigarillos he'll be smoking. In the yes, movie. yes. Again, <laughs> it's, it's it's very much a fifteen-year-old boy in 1974's idea of grown-up elegance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Leisure suits and huge wide lapels. Mm-hmm. Shatner. I. I Shatner has very ridiculous hair in this movie. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, women cannot get enough of this man. Yeah, one of those women is a, yet another wealthy widow with a resentful daughter who doesn't trust Shatner from the start. And then it, it basically becomes the, the bonked in the head version of Shadow of a <laughs> Not very good child actress, you know, yeah. going toe to toe with some prime Shatnering. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's so much pleasure to be had in middle-aged William Shatner getting really mad at a teenage girl all the time. Yes, like very he's much so. like really grouchy. Has the sort of the uh, energy that Larry David energy. That we yes. Love. <laughs> also, the the kid reminded me a little bit of the Bad Seed. Yes, and again, <laughs> sort of the the, the very store brand. We, we have the Bad Seed at home kind of quality <laughs> of everything in this movie. Uh, we're introduced to her because she's trying to get a ride to school and she's standing in the middle of the road, forcing Shatner to stop right. for her. And then like one minute into the ride together, they run over a dog. Yes. <laughs> just, it's so nasty and bleak the entire time. <laughs> it's just so wonderfully mean. <laughs> and, and she's like, shouldn't we go back? The dog might be might be okay, and and Shatner says dogs lick their wounds. They clean them real good. He'll be fine. Yes. <laughs> the other thing that was confusing about this movie is that Matt Stone meets the little girl, and then a local matchmaker sets Matt Stone up with the girl's mother. And there's a really gratuitous ass shot of her to to. Oh, that's a, yeah, that's a William Griffey thing. Yeah. Man loved his ass shots. Yeah. <laughs> So they're on a date together in this really strange scene where he's trying to lay on the charm and sort of, you know, trying to, he's going to bilk her next for her money because she's right. a widow. And then all of a sudden this woman carrying a bunch of balloons runs into him yes. and he blows his stack on her. And at one point he just screams, people like you should be grounded at dog meat. <laughs> yeah. <It's> like, <laughs> well, at least, at least there were no red flags to this relationship. Right? I know. She, 
She didn't seem to mind that this new guy in her life is like, she's like, what was that all about? Right. <laughs> like, you didn't hear him say that she should be ground into dog meat. Mm-hmm. That is a definite red flag. On a, and then he starts talking about what's inside a hot dog. Yeah, I mean, I mean it, 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 it's all these weird non sequiturs until the end of the movie. And it's like, yeah. I just realized that uh, Matt Stone is like an incel who actually can pick up chicks. Yes, that's, that's, that's a really good way to put it. It's, it it's, it's sort of like, you know, you're a raging misogynist who n- nonetheless is up to your knees in lonely widow pussy. So what the hell is your problem? It's like, why, why are you bound so tight? Why are you trying to kill them all the time? Yes. I didn't notice this. I don't know if you noticed this, Jessica, but there's a, apparently a scene where um, Shatner just killed somebody and and uh, he's he gets out of the car and then he farts and it made the movie. No, I missed that. <laughs> apparently he rips a fart and then he sighs in the take to try and make it seem natural. But uh, maybe the 4K remaster will really bring up the fart scene. Yes, I, I hope so. <laughs> The, the the version that's on YouTube is sort of a low res. It'll do for yeah, now. yeah. But um, yeah. So after this date that he goes on with Anne, he comes home to his motel room to see Harold Oddjob Sakata for some reason. Yes, <laughs> and his name is Karate Pete. <laughs> distant descendant of Kung Fu George. <laughs> yeah, one of the, one of very incredible topical uh, Guy Ritchie King Arthur reference there for the kids. Yeah. and um so he's um he was matt stone's partner in crime although i was trying to figure out was he his pimp if matt stone was the gigolo i have never been able to figure out if it was sort of like partner in crime or pimp or (laughs) something but anyway he uh, i've never really heard odd job speak before right but uh, at one point he says uh what does he say? You you are you are too horny or something like that. He something, says, something like that. Yeah. It... <laughs> it's, anyway, he wants in on this scam, and this leads to one of the most insane moments of the movie, where um, Tina sneaks into Matt's car, and then Matt, without realizing Tina's in the car, drives over to Karate Pete's trailer home, which is next to a car wash. Yes, yes, the death by car wash, which is like, <laughs> don't see that every day. No. First, he tries to strangle him with a long cable, uh, which, by the way, there was an accident while they were filming that, and it actually started to strangle Sakata, and Shatner had to hold him up because there was this um, platform that he was standing on that was supposed to rise up, and mm-hmm. it started malfunctioning. So Shatner had to prop Sakata up with his body, and he actually broke one of his fingers trying to save him. It's in the movie. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, again, it's like I, I as much as like it's probably a good thing you don't get filmmaking stories like this anymore. I do miss the kind of like B movie uh, ecosystem that would lead to you getting stories like this. Yeah, yeah, we're not calling for no health and safety measures on sets, right? <laughs> but, we just um, want some antidotes. That's all. An antidote is a treat. Um. So yeah, um, and then and then he chases him into a car wash and then drives over. <laughs> Tina, of course, sees this, um, and then nobody will believe Tina when she's trying to convince people that Matt's a murderer. And uh, there's a really funny scene where they go to an amusement park or something, and uh, 
the girl whispers into her mom's ear that Shatner's a killer. And then they have this zoom in on Shatner at a, at a kiosk buying, buying stuff like wearing a really bad black and white striped shirt. Yes. Yeah. By like the sunglasses rack or something. (laughs) Yeah. He's next to the sunglasses rack. (laughs) It's just like, Oh my God. It's, it's a lot. Just drink it in ladies. Just drink it in. (laughs) Yeah. So um, then there's a really funny scene uh, where she tries to, Tina tries to convince, well, the mother thinks that Tina's only saying this because she doesn't want her mother to remarry. Right. And of course, uh, Shatner's uh, peeking around in the background. He's worried that people are going to believe Tina. So he starts bad mouthing her and saying, you know, she goes to graveyards all the time. That's not normal for a kid. Um, yeah, because because she well she does because you know to, to talk to the gravestone of her her father. So it's it's one of those things where it's like it's 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 a really hilarious, stupid version of much better movies. Yeah, when Tina tries to convince Ruth Roman about Shatner, she's told you're a mean, jealous, vicious little girl, and you've got to stop it. <laughs> it's like is 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 it really worth you know? protecting him that much. It's like, you look at Shatner and like, yeah, I, I will completely lay down my dignity for, for that striped tank top. <laughs> yeah. And so the film climaxes with uh, Shatner and the girl, they're having a fight in the, um, in a funeral home. I think so. And I think it's in, in again, the dollar store Freud, she ends up like impaling him in a way that recalls the way that he as a child killed one of his mother's customers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but is the movie saying that uh, all kids are bad? Yeah, I, I, I mean, it's one of those things where it's like maybe it's supposed to be like ah, cycles of violence makes you think, huh? <laughs> kind of yeah. thing. It's like, yeah. well, you you should stick to where jellyfish where William Griffey. That's a little <laughs> bit more your your lane. Yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah. So the movie ends with uh, dead Shatner. Uh, yeah. Roll credits. Impulse is getting the deluxe restoration treatment from Grindhouse releasing later this year. I've seen the trailer for it. It looks beautiful. And the disc is loaded with extras, um, including as yet unconfirmed additional films by William Griffey. So you can order it now and they're only making 2000 of them. (laughs) So I have to decide, uh, do I want to be one of the 2000 people on the earth that has impulse on on 4k? Yeah. See, for me, things, films like impulse is why like some things kind of deserve. And if anything are better served by seeing crumb, it being seen in crummy VHS rips on YouTube. Impulse Mm -hmm. is definitely, one of those at least as far as i'm concerned you know these are glorious days like i'm glad also that terrible films are getting deluxe reissues yeah i mean like it shouldn't just be the preserve of lawrence of arabia and stuff you you know you need garbage too yeah well and and not the least and I, i this is another reason that like you know b movies and trash films are such an interest of mine is that a lot of times marginalized filmmakers like women filmmakers and queer filmmakers you had freedom making porn and trash and trash porn that you were never going to get hired by any of the majors or TV to begin with. And for a lot of this stratum of filmmaking, like as long as it had the resolute amounts of like sex and violence, well, then you can do whatever else you want. Uh, Before we get to the final movie that we're going to talk about in detail, I wanted to mention, you told me about this ancient astronauts bullshit 
ripoff of Chariots of the Gods that Shatner hosts and narrates called Mysteries of the Gods. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's what it sounds like. It's the incredibly incredibly racist Chariots of the Gods nonsense was this huge hit in the seventies. So this is one of the most nakedly obvious. Uh, ripoffs of like looking at these genuinely rich and interesting like indigenous cultures and going well you couldn't have possibly done this aliens taught you how to do this like there's this moment (laughs) where there's a close-up on a really impressive ancient mesoamerican mask made out of platinum and they're like and did you know that the melting point of platinum is like 3500 degrees and like and that's impressive, but this also clearly has hammer marks on it. Like it's incredibly obvious how they made it because the thing about platinum is it's soft. So you, yeah. if you, you don't, you don't need, you know, industrial level foundries to make incredible things out of it, you know, kind <laughs> of thing. So, so this is one of those horrible uh, ethnographic movies yes, in the seventies yes, where they're like, so. wow, these primitive people were so, they, they were so far ahead of their, time could it be that aliens showed them how to do this yeah because like you don't ever see like did aliens teach us how to build the coliseum and like the, yeah. the, the, the most europe ever gets pulled into that is sometimes there's nonsense around stonehenge but for the yeah. for the most part it's like nobody thinks that like you know uh, that an alien needed to teach like a roman how to do anything and that sort of gives the game away to me yeah yeah so let's talk about the the last gem that we want to direct uh, the listeners to that you told me about. And mm-hmm. uh, this got fast-tracked onto the episode because I loved it. Yeah, it's uh, fun. It's called Disaster on the Coastliner, a 1979 TV movie of the week made a few months before Shatner's career renaissance. Yes, and as such, it's really interesting because um, in most of the films we've talked about, there's really something interesting of Shatner either by design or what he's getting offered are the, are the way things inadvertently make patterns out of themselves are playing these very weak characters. These, these, you know, these simps, the, these beta cucks, the, you know, all, whatever you <laughs> modern term losers for, for, yeah. for a better word. And, and, and it feels like almost intentional of like, you know, the, for, the former captain Kirk who the, the world was his oyster is now this sad sack ad man. But like, uh, Disaster in the Coastliner is interesting is that Shatner's playing a con man, but he's playing a kind of jovial, charming rogue con man. So that it feels like he's gearing back up to playing Captain Kirk again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's he's exuding confidence. Yeah. Like any good con man would. Uh, he's a smooth operator and uh, he's not an alcoholic. He's Mm-mm. a guy who loves his life. He doesn't and, chew on his finger when he's about to have a psychotic <laughs> episode. That's right. He doesn't, uh, yeah, he's not uh, drinking the entire train ride yes. because he's a defrocked loser. Right. He's a guy who, uh, he, he, he gets on the train, he's being pursued by the cops. Right. So things pick up for the movie when Shatner the con man meets uh, a young woman who's traveling alone named Yvette Mimieux. She's on her way to Los Angeles yeah, Yvette Mimo is, is always a fun presence to see. She was another regular of uh, on the 70s TV movies. And like she's probably best known for being the heroine in The Time Machine. That's right. And I know her from being one of the crew on The Black Hole. That's right. That's right. She's the, the, she's the, the friendly psychic in The Black Hole. 
Yeah. So Shatner gloms onto her and she kind of goes along with him when he proposes that they're, that they should pretend that they're married. She's not aware that he's being dodged by cops, but he's, he's sort of play acting that let's pretend we're married kind of thing. He's, he's very interested in her. And and I wrote in my notes. So this is kind of like uh, before sunrise meets the Cassandra crossing. <laughs> How come you have all that money in the briefcase? I mean, where did that... Shh. I can't tell you the truth right now. But I will sometime. What makes you think there's going to be a sometime, huh? Where are you going? Stretch my legs and get some air. And, honey, I'm, I'm going to need some cigarettes. It's this disgruntled engineer played by Paul L. Smith, uh, a.k.a. Bluto from Robert Altman's Popeye. Oh, that's right. He did a ton of, uh, do you know, the Laurentiis stuff in the 80s, too. Like, I'm, he pops up in Conan the Destroyer. Yeah. So he takes over the train leaving from San Francisco and puts it on the same track as another train that's coming from Los Angeles. And the engineer has fucked with the system control. And uh, the the people at Master Control can't do anything about it. By the way, played by E.G. Marshall... And as a Secret Service agent, Lloyd Bridges. Why a Secret Service agent? Because the vice president's wife is on the train. Yep. That yeah. <laughs> and, and there's something again so charming about the modest ambitions of that movie in a way that I think really makes it work. It's not like it's not like oh no, the president's on this train too. You know. Kind of they have to lower the stakes it's not the president on the train it's the vice president's wife i mean that's that's still gonna you know be unfortunate i don't mean (laughs) and uh also raymond burr is in this as the Mm -hmm. president of the railroad all the engineer wants is for the railroad to admit that the accident that that killed his family was the fault of the railroad company that's all he wants he doesn't want a reward he just wants the truth to get out that the person who faked the report to make the railroad look innocent was then offered a job at the railroad. And Raymond Burr, who is new to the company, is horrified to find out that the engineer might have a point here. Right. <laughs> Even though he's going to plow one train into another <laughs> yeah, it's, it's... 150 miles an hour. <clears throat> they basically have 90 minutes to stop this from happening. Right. And the big Hail Mary towards the end of the movie is that they suddenly get a railroad crew to build a track (laughs) that they can divert the one train so that it doesn't hit the other train. Right. And how these guys managed to build a couple of miles of track (laughs) in an hour. Uh, The movie does. uh, It's fine though, you know, because this movie is so entertaining and funny that I'm not going to penalize it to, I mean, I laughed. Mm-hmm. That they were really doing this, but it they did it. So it's funny. So this movie is sort of punching above its weight. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was shot by Frederick J. Conenkamp, who shot The Towering Inferno. He won an Oscar for it. Mm-hmm. He shot Patton, and he shot Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. <laughs> so it looks great. It's got yeah. a great cast. Uh, it chugs along, if you will. Um, it's and and you actually hope that Shatner and Yvette Mamieux will wind up together. At the yes, end. yeah, they, they have a really charming chemistry. Yeah, and and Shatner does some stunts mm-hmm. in the film, which is a pleasure to see. Uh, like there are some parts where the train like goes past a town, and all the people are waving as the train goes by, and I just thought total um, local news story, like a 
movie stars yes. and a TV crew were in town to make a movie. Yeah. And there was a scene where they rode past our central station. Yeah. And they used some of the local townsfolk in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> they they all look like they're not terrified that this high speed train is going past them there and people are fighting on the roof of the train. They're all waving and saying hello. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well in, in um uh, Kingdom of the Spiders, it's really <laughs> funny in a lot of the crowd scenes when people are supposed to be like fleeing in terror from the tarantulas, you can tell that these are locals and you can tell that like, yeah, there's not time for second takes with the number of like big grins and we this is fun and all yeah. the extras running. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Kingdom of the Spiders is uh, I think it's on YouTube. Uh, yeah, I believe so. And it got released theatrically. Um, it's it's pretty funny, and it certainly has a super downbeat ending. Yes, and Sh- Shatner plays a real uh, another ladies' man uh, with a mysterious past, right? In the film, uh, but you know, this could be a nine-hour episode of Junk Filter if we talked about every movie yes. that Shatner made yes. in the seventies. But I'd, let's do a, a quick shout out to Big Bad Mama. Oh yes, that's you know from the venerable Roger Corman New World Factory, kind of cashing in on like you know the nostalgia for. Depression era crime flicks that uh, kicked off by Bonnie and Clyde and um, reuniting him with the, or I should say maybe the first time he and Angie Dickinson worked together in that uh, she's, she's playing a Ma Barker type with like, you know, her nubile young daughters are also her partners in crime. And, and basically the girls share between them, uh, Tom Skerritt, who is really good in this. And it's kind Mm -hmm. of like a performance from him. I had not seen before. Yeah, he's he's so fun in it, and mm-hmm. he and Shatner hated each other's guts. Yes, <laughs> on the film, and I th- I think Roger Corman found footage of Shatner and Skerritt having an actual fist fight on the set mm-hmm. <laughs> that got caught on film. <laughs> but there's two other little oddities of Shatner's career in the '70s that I want to talk about with you before we wrap up the show. One is this uh, weird thing that you added to the playlist. A segment of a show called Storybook Squares, which I guess was a children's version of Hollywood Squares. It, it appears that every so often, Hollywood Squares would do dress-up episodes of the show, but like n- not to it seemingly tying necessarily to something reliable, like oh, it's Halloween or Christmas. That's why doing this. So it's like it, it's it's the, the the gimmick is the celebrity guests are dressing up as like famous storybook characters uh, but again a very weird definition of storybook characters because in the one i linked to it's like charo is that well-known character from brothers grim lady godiva and then a very tipsy looking shatner is reprising captain kirk because because shatner has this sort of ill-fitting captain kirk shirt that might have been his old shirt from star trek yes but he's wearing it 10 years later and he's got his 70s hair and he looks like he's had a few drinks in the green room. He, he, what he really looks like is like a really dissipated version of the Mego Captain Kirk action figure. That's like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I mean, this is the Mego Captain Kirk you pulled out from behind the couch and his hair is every which way and the cat's I'm positive I had one of those. Yes. I'm positive. <laughs> to cap our Shatner retrospective, let's talk about the piece de resistance something that in, in invokes his incredible acting, his incredible interest in music, his in, incredible ties to science fiction and <laughs> genre weirdness, which is his immortal performance at the 1978 Saturn Awards of Rocket Man. Yes. <laughs> Pack my bags. 
last night, pre-flight. Zero hour. Nine a.m. And I'm gonna be high. As a kite by then. In ye olden days, before the internet, if you wanted to see things like Rocket Man, which were like legendary that they existed, you had to know somebody who knew somebody who had the VHS copy of it. So ninth generation copies of VHS tapes would be tape traded of stuff like Rocket Man or the Winnebago Man training video and stuff like that. You had to know somebody who had it. So, of course, since I was cool, I uh, got access to the Rocket Man VHS. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think for like Gen Xers too, it's like Chris Elliott recreated it for Letterman when Letterman was on NBC. Yes. <laughs> and and Beck paid tribute to it in the Where It's At music video too. That's right. That's why he's he's dressed and is, is acting like that. I, yeah. In the Rocketman video, William Shatner's uh, doing the song as three different personalities too. He's doing an example of the, you know, the id, the ego, and the super ego. Uh, ego. So like, yeah, so Smoking Shatner is the id. Uh, Sh- uh, Shatner on the right is the ego. And then the, the dancing one that comes in on the left at the end is the, <laughs> is the super ego. <laughs> well, what was so funny about Rocketman is that First, a second Shatner shows up and it's like, wow, that's incredible. And then you didn't even occur to you that there would be a third Shatner. Right. It's just so fucking funny. And, uh, and, and he does it so serious too. Like he's not laughing or like, it's very hard to understand why this is happening. And it was introduced by Karen Black and Bernie Taupin himself who co-wrote with uh, Elton John, the song. Yeah, I, I mean, like, again, why is this happening? Well, if it's the 70s, the answer eight times out of 10 is cocaine. <laughs> cocaine is why this is happening. <laughs> so the one thing that I found out, though, is this was never aired for television. It was it was recorded in-house to document the event itself for the oh. Saturn Awards people. But that tape got loose and then became legendary tape trading material. Oh, that's that's interesting because I was like, like "Fuck, I want to see the whole Saturn Awards." But uh, the only part that ever got that ever escaped the vault was the the Rocket Man segment. Yeah, that makes sense. That that <laughs> was something that Shatner revealed when he was confused as to why it was so popular. He said that wasn't even supposed to be aired on TV. To close the show, Jessica, let's talk a little bit about uh, when Shatner went to outer space. Oh, that, that's that's such a wild story to me. Well, you know, Jeff Bezos built his midlife crisis penis rocket, and among <laughs> the the people invited on it was Shatner, because you know the the easy PR of "Hey, Captain Kirk goes to space at last," and like Shatner apparently had a profound existential crisis of actually being in space and actually seeing how fragile and alone the world looks in the vast unknowable void of space. And so Jeff Bezos, who like all Silicon Valley billionaires has never had a moment of deep thought or reflection in his life was just hooting and hollering and spraying champagne everywhere when they landed. And Shatner was 
clearly overwhelmed and really wanted to talk to somebody about, about this profound experience he just had. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and to me, that gives you an insight into Shatner a yeah. little bit that like, you know, as beloved as he is and uh, as up for it as he is all the time for him to go into space and go, Oh my God, the vast horror of outer space and our tiny little planet and look what we're doing to it and how I got to see this because I was on a TV show. Some self-awareness turns into entertainment and comedy, but some self-awareness comes into like sort of realizing um, what's real and what's not real. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's sort of like, you know, for such a, like a comic and campy figure, it's interesting to, to understand that like, well, you know, most everyone does actually have a rich inner life. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Not Jeff Bezos, maybe, but everyone else. So, Jessica, before we go, let's do a little victory lap and pat ourselves on the back for uh, calling it with uh, the Flash. Yes, yes. I, like I said, that was my canary in the coal mine for is the superhero boom really kind of over? And yes, that that canary died like William Shatner was chasing it through a car wash. <laughs> I have, have never seen though anything though, like second weekend, buy one, get one free, like it's a Whopper Jr. special Burger King is running to like juice sales or something. Yeah. <laughs> the BOGO special. The BOGO for $300 million movie. And then on and weekend number three, it made $5 million. It's like, come on, Black Adam didn't do that badly. No, that like, I, and again, like, it's not only that the Flash bombed, it's like it bombed this hard. Like, I really thought Keaton Nostalgia might get it seven. I mean, honestly, Keaton Nostalgia might have actually gotten $100 million and then it would you just collapse. Mm-hmm. in the following weekends, but like, nope. <laughs> Not even. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I really do think that Twitter did a lot of damage to the movie by not doing anything about all those um, photos in the movie theater getting out on Twitter. Like it took a long time for the copyright police to catch up to that. And again, if like the reaction had been positive, there would not be, been that crackdown because you know the all publicity is good publicity well most of the time it is but like the, i think really think that that and again really relieved and surprised that people were actively repulsed once they saw undead christopher reeve like you're really you you are to protect your spree criminal you're doing something this grotesque i still think that's a good thing though like i definitely think the flash doing badly is a good thing in that audiences are like, you know, like, you know, Howard Beale, like, I'm a human being, God damn it, my life has value. I'm not going to, you know, you, you can't just j- you jangle keys at me and expect, you know, $100 million opening weekends every time. Just because I've always been doing this doesn't mean I always will be doing this. Yeah, ex- exactly. And like, and for me, like, I was getting worried that, uh, well, I guess this is just the way things are. But I'm like, no, you know, I mean, well, again, yeah, like, I'm going to do some ins dancing in that like i was right in calling black adam the hello dolly of the super oh boom in that like you know roadshow musicals and old hollywood bloated pageantry were the only game in town until they weren't anymore and then the industry has to go through this year-long painful phase of more bombs going off yes yes i mean i mean it's not like they can quickly whip up what people want to see 
Yeah, and I mean, I mean, like, it's really funny, like, with Blue Beetle, like, I'm seeing Gunn start to hedge his bets of, like, well, this is going to be the first DCU character, and, like, realizing that, like, the, the previous method of, you know, promotion is the, oh, none of this matters, might have actually backfired a touch. Yeah. When will you watch The Flash? What's your plan? Are you going to do I, it to yourself? I will probably, when it hits max, check out the the mortuary of undead cameos to just see how absolutely appalling that is. But like, I, I don't actually have that much Keaton nostalgia to even check out the rest. And like, I have no interest in, in Ezra, Ezra Miller as an actor, even before they got in trouble. I might watch like the, like the 15 minutes of uh, Supergirl to feel bad and mad again for poor Sasha Calais of, you know, this is your big breakout role. And depending on the executive musical chairs and reshoot schedule, you're either going to be a major new player with a spinoff or you're just getting 15 minutes total. But you also will be doing most of the press for this movie because you're not radioactive like the actual lead is. Yay us. We we called this. We yeah. saw it coming. Nobody listened. Now will they listen to us though? I, I, well, I think so, considering that, like, you know, everyone's now expectation isn't on, like, how well is Blue Beetle and Aquaman going to do? But, like, well, how hard are they going to tie at the box office? Uh, there was a funny article in Variety today about, like, wow, Disney has this real problem these days. Most of their movies cost 200, 300 million another hundred million for marketing, but they're not doing very well financially. So they have a, a bigger hurdle to clear in terms of profitability. And I was like, I have some suggestions. I mean, it's, it's the drill candles tweet as Hollywood economics. It's like, you know, food and utilities, $500, Indiana Jones movie. No one was asking for a billion dollars. Somebody please help balance this. My Hollywood is dying. <laughs> Jessica, tell my listeners about your Patreon. Oh, well, my Patreon is Cold Takes, where I put this list up publicly, and it's basically where I write about whatever interests me pop-culturally, old and new. And it, as it tends to be, it runs toward the more like obscure and off-the-beaten-path stuff with the occasional commentary on what's uh, big at the moment. I'm also, for now, Ruby Stevens at Twitter, and I am J.M. Ritchie at Blue Sky. Well, Jessica, thank you so much for joining me again. Uh, you and I have plans to go and watch the Marvels in the fall. <sighs> and yeah, well. The things we do for pod. Indeed. Maybe if we're lucky, they'll postpone the release until February. Yeah. And and then like we can like, uh, there'll be like, there'll be like, like some like fun programmer like Plane or Megan. We can go, we can go see to like get the taste of the Marvels out of our mouths. <laughs> well, Jessica Ritchie, thank you so much for joining me. Please come back anytime. Thank you. Before we go, just a reminder that we do have a Patreon, and patrons get access to every episode of Junk Filter, including this summer's Miami Vice Sidebar series. To become a patron and to support the show directly, please go to patreon.com slash junkfilter. And please follow us on Twitter at junkfilterpod. We'll have another episode of the show in the next few days. The original music for this program was provided by Marker Starling. My name is Jesse Hawken. Thank you for listening.